Good morning. Today we'll be hearing from the word of the Lord in Galatians, chapter 3, verses from 7 to 14. Please join me in reading these verses. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the men of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Our sixes and sevens, you are dismissed to your class, so feel free to head up this way. Just want to encourage you as you hear the good news that this is the word of the Lord, feel free to respond to that by saying, Amen. Amen. Okay. In, in unison, we would want to say, thanks be to God. So feel free week in and week out as we have the opportunity to be reminded that what we just heard is indeed the word of the living God. And that has been preserved for us and we can know him through it. We want to say thanks be to God. Let's pray as we approach his word even now. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you in awe recognizing the wonder of who you are, being reminded of the deficiencies and all that we lack in who we are. God, I pray that by your grace, you would allow these next few moments to just expand the capacities of our soul that that which has been darkness to us would be made light. And that this morning we would turn from darkness and we would run to the light. We thank you that in you there is life and life abundant. And so as we open up the treasure, tre the treasure chest of your word, I pray that you would allow us to behold beautiful things that we would behold our Savior, Jesus the Christ. And so would you allow this poor, lisping, stammering tongue to resound 
in unison with your scriptures and saying all praise and glory and honor be to you and to you alone. And so may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached for your glory and for our good. Amen. Have you ever seen or heard something that made you wonder, how could anyone be so foolish? Since I moved to Florida, it is not uncommon for me to get texts from friends who live out of state and who say, bro, did this really happen in Florida? And then I proceed to open up the article, and it's an article about some interesting things that seemed to happen in Florida as I was researching. This is a fun part of uh, the week. Uh, I just came across a few of those that my friends had sent me. One was, a Florida man fills pothole with banana tree. And uh, uh, in hopes of making a point, another was that Florida man robs Waffle House with finger gun. (laughs) And... Uh, Not to be outdone by him, uh, Florida man wielding sword sets fire to roadway and floods the booking office after his arrest. Um, So I'm starting to look, and I'm just reading some of these things, and next thing you know, I've I've spent way too much time looking at these stories. And I come across another one, though while not in Florida, said that a man hit by train in quest for perfect selfie. And I'm just going, what? A man literally tried to get a selfie next to a moving train, and he was hit. And in case you're wondering, he, he did live. He probably uh, will not get close to moving trains. Um, but as I was looking and I was just reading uh, the other... God. <laughs> The other pothole that I fell in and looking at some of these things, we're reading some of the comments. And um, over and over, there was this refrain of just the height of stupidity. Like, well, how in the world and why in the world would anyone do this? We pick up this morning in the middle of the letter to the Galatians, where Paul is warning these Christians of something just as outlandish and as absurd And dare I say, even more deadly than being hit and run over by a train. What's that? What is it that he's trying to warn these Galatian believers of? Trying to earn God's favor by the works that they do. And I wonder what just ran through your mind. I wonder if you really believe that it's as outlandish and absurd and potentially even more deadly to try to earn your works, uh, to earn your favor by your works before a holy God, do you think that's more absurd and outlandish and deadly than getting hit by a train? The blessing that's conveyed in our passage this morning, as well as the devastating curses that are conveyed in the passage this morning will just remind us of what really is at stake. And when we talk about what's at stake and talking about the blessings and the curses of a holy God, 
It's answers to questions like this. How do we know where we stand before this holy God? And is there really any way to ever stand acceptable before a holy God? I wonder how this God feels about me even today. You may be thinking, man, this is a great message that one of my co-workers or my family members or my, my friend that's not a Christian, they need to hear this. And I want to affirm, there is no better message than your non-Christian co-worker, family, family member, and friend can hear. But let's be reminded this morning, church, that this wasn't an evangelistic tract written to, to unbelievers, to non-Christians. No, this was a letter that was written to Christians who had forgotten the gospel. When I say gospel, I'm just that shorthand for referring to the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ to redeem, to provide forgiveness to sinful humanity so that sinful humanity can be made right with God. And so Paul's writing to these Christians who had forgotten the gospel and they'd forgotten the implications of the gospel in their lives. And so Covenant Life Church, at the outset, I just want to remind you, don't think that merely because your behaviors have straightened up, don't think that merely because your name is on the roll of this church, don't think that merely because certain struggles have, have gone away that you can now just coast. It's helpful for us to remember that Paul's opponents that he's addressing through this letter, they had moral behavior. And yet they were still under the curse of God. You see, Christianity is not an outside-in religion. It's not about do these things, you will be accepted by the things that you do, and then hopefully your heart will catch up. No, it's an inside-out faith. Changes us gives us new desires and new affections and a heart that longs to obey and our actions then follow. And so perhaps you're here as a Christian, you're thinking, okay, I think this is going to be another sermon about the gospel. I've been coming for a, a little while and it seems that every week it's about the gospel. And we would say because every page of scripture testifies to the Christ of the gospel. And it all comes back to this good news of how a sinful humanity can be made right with a holy God. And so I just want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that every sermon should be a salvation sermon. It's what Jonathan Edwards would say. Is that the gospel isn't only the introduction to Christ for non-Christians, but that it's also the way in which Christians will endure the Christian faith. How in the world do we get from where we're at today to glory? And how do we get there safely? It's through the truths of the gospel. That which, with, that which with we believed in the beginning will be that which maintains and helps us persevere to the end. And so I just want to remind you this morning, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you need this word. You need this word. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, it was no trouble for me to remind you of these things. I can, I've, I've caught myself this week knowing that this study has taken us again and again to some similar themes. 
And this week, my heart has been corrected just by Paul's instruction in Philippians 3. Justin, it, is, it should be joy to you to remind the flock of God of these things. Because I think just like the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, just like the Galatians throughout this letter, you and I are prone to slip back into the thinking that somehow we can work our way into right standing with God. We all face this temptation to say with our lips, yes, we believe that we're declared righteous before God by faith, and yet with our lives to feel like we're on this ladder of having to perform and he's not still pleased with me because I'm not doing enough. And the letter of Galatians just says, church, you are free in Christ to receive his love. And so... If you're not a Christian this morning, you're a doubting Christian this morning, I want to thank you for being here, and I want to say that you're in good company. I don't think there's a better place for you to consider the claims of Christ and what it means to be a Christian than with the church. And so I pray that the sermon this morning would help even clarify some of the confusion that exists in our culture around what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? And maybe even more than that, I've been praying that you would know how even today, in light of all that you've done wrong, how you can be made right with this holy God. And so I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. 3 is the larger number, usually in the top right or left corner. Galatians chapter 3, it's in the New Testament. We'll be in verses 7 through 14. Those are the smaller numbers under the 3. Those will be the verses. That's where we're at. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Last week in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, what we saw is Paul began by asking a list of questions so that he could just show, he could expose to these Galatian Christians how far they have drifted from where they began. They began in faith. And what he wanted to do was just show that over the course of time, subtly, and even in light of these teachers, these false teachers that were coming in, they were, they were being swept away by thinking that, okay, we began something by faith. How in the world are we going to maintain it and keep it up? Well, we're going to have to do that through our works. And Paul just asked a list of questions to show, no, 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 that is a uh, futile and wrong way of thinking. And then in verse 6, he introduces Abraham to the discussion. And we don't know whether the false teachers were going around saying, hey, if you're going to be a man of faith a child of, of faith, and you have to be like Abraham. Or whether Paul then says, hey, if we're going to keep going back to the father of this Jewish nation, then let's talk about Abraham. Either way, they must have been unprepared at some level for what Paul would say. He quoted Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where he says, Then he believed, he being Abraham, then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He credited it to him as righteousness. Why in the world would God credit Abraham to be righteous? Why would he credit righteousness into his account? Well, the text tells us, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, because he believed. If we were to go back and read the verse prior God has made a promise to, to Abraham. And the promise is that though he is beyond, him and his wife are beyond pregnancy kind of age, they've been barren their, their whole lives, 
Though, though that's their circumstance, God made a promise that he was going to give them offspring. We're going to have as many heirs as there were stars in the sky. And upon hearing what would seem to be an outlandish promise, 99, 90 years old, this couple was. Abraham believes. He believes. He believes that God is going to bless the nation. Something that he said earlier in Genesis chapter 12. That all the nations would be blessed through him. He believed that he would be a father of a multitude of nations. And yet he didn't have a son. How in the world was this going to happen? Abraham didn't know, but Abraham knew the character of God. And so he believed. Abraham didn't work. He didn't obey. He simply believed. And let's be clear. His faith wasn't a work. Right? Work doesn't come into the picture until 14 years later when circumcision is given. Or even 450 years later when the law is given. And so these false teachers were showing up saying, hey, if you're going to be like Abraham, then you got to do these works. And Paul says, no, 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 no. When God credited, counted it, uh, reckoned Abraham is righteous, works weren't even in the picture. This was a matter of belief. Tom Schreiner helpfully states it this way. He says, faith isn't a work that makes someone righteous. Rather, faith is counted as righteousness because faith unites Christ, who is our righteousness, to the believer. And it's also helpful, I believe, Tim Keller here would say, general belief in God is not saving faith. It wasn't merely that at this point when Abraham was counted as righteous, it wasn't merely that he said, yeah, I believe there's a God out there. No, general belief in God does not equal saving faith. James 2.19 will tell us even the demons believe. Saving faith is believing and trusting specifically what God has promised. Abraham trusted. He believed by faith and it was counted to him. He was reckoned as righteousness. And so in our passage this morning, Paul's going to keep the focus on Abraham. We're going to consider three, uh, three truths that he strings together, I believe, to convince these Christians to trust in the work of Christ alone but also to show that if you trust in anything else, it's deadly. It's deadly. I trust that these truths will likewise convince us and warn us that it's faith in Christ alone or it's nothing. It's faith in Christ alone. Life, abundant, or it's deadly. First, God's blessing is received by faith. God's blessing is received by faith. Look again in your Bibles, verses 7 through 9. Listen again to the word of the Lord. Therefore, be sure it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, if we just start with verse 7, you would think, okay, let me try to make sense of the argument. Let me go back and read verse 6 with verse 7 so that we can hear it. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith 
who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. All right, so if we step back and we say, what is happening here? What is, what is Paul trying? What's the argument that he's trying to make? And what he wants to make, the argument, the point that he wants to make is that God's blessing is received by faith. And he introduces that in verse 6 to say, this is how Abraham was reckoned as righteousness. This was credited to him because he believed. And then you get in verse 7, and what's he say? Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so like Abraham believed, those who believe are called of faith, and those who are of faith are also called sons of Abraham. The same thing we see in verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. How was Abraham blessed? He was blessed because he was counted, credited, reckoned as righteousness. Paul says it's not about the works that you do, but about the trust and belief and faith in the work that God has done. That's what makes you one of Abraham's sons. Some of you grew up singing the song, right? I mean, he had many of them. And Lord willing, you are one of them. But what makes you one of them is not what you have done. It's faith. Jesus runs into this in John chapter 8. The the teachers of the law are going, no, 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 wait a minute. You have us misunderstood. We're not as bad as you're saying. Do you know why? Because we are children of Abraham. Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If Abraham was your father, the works that you do would be different than this. What works is he talking about? He's not talking about circumcision. He's, not talk- He's talking about you don't have faith. You don't believe. The Bible's way of describing our trust in God's promise, mainly our trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His finished work on the cross and His resurrection on the third day for the forgiveness of sins, right standing with God. That's what Paul means when he says it's by faith. It's by faith. Do you trust that the only way that you can stand right before a holy God is the work that Jesus Christ has done and you placing your faith and trust in that work all the while turning from all of your works? That's what it means to be of faith. Having faith in Christ alone is how one is credited righteous. Sometimes we can think, yeah, the Old Testament, that was the Jewish way to salvation in the Old Testament was by your works, keeping the law. And the Gentile way to salvation in the New Testament is by faith. It's by grace. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Even from the beginning, the Old Testament way to salvation, by faith. The New Testament way to salvation, by faith. I think we're served here to just even be reminded the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The Bible will help us know how to best read the Bible. And so it's helpful for us as we open Galatians chapter 3, we begin to see, oh, wait a minute. The things that we read earlier in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, you begin to go, wait a minute, that, ah, 
Paul is telling us what the Spirit-inspired meaning is. All who have faith in Jesus receive the same blessing as Abraham. And so what everyone would have thought is that sonship with Abraham was all about whether or not you were of his descent. And Paul says, no. It's about whether or not you are of faith. In faith. And I believe it's, it's at this place in verse 8 where this good news takes a shocking turn. Because the nation that Abraham became the father of was a Jewish people. And all non-Jews were called Gentiles or nations. And yet what Paul says is, I, is understanding the Bible, understanding what the, the inspired scriptures were written for and were uh, intending to convey is that literally the plan all along has been for Gentiles to be the recipients of such blessing, of being not under the curse of God, but being the recipients of his blessing. We see this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And that's what in verse 8, what Paul quotes From the founding of this Jewish nation, there was this intent that all the nations of the world would be blessed through them. And so from the moment that Abraham came on the scene, or maybe a better way of saying it is that when God came to this nomadic, pagan, Middle Eastern man, he did nothing. He did nothing to deserve the grace and the favor that he found. He worked for none of it. And it's from him This one who had nothing to offer, who had nothing to bring to the table to say, God, I am worth you building a people that would bless all peoples. God, yes, I'm the guy. He had nothing. And yet it would be that God would intend to justify people from every nation. All on the basis of will anyone Jew, Gentile, will anyone believe, place their faith in the promises of God as so seen? The Old Testament looking forward to those promises, us on this side of the New Testament looking back at those promises. Yes, he has fulfilled all of his promises. Yes, he will fulfill all of his promises We place our faith and our trust there. Even just this reminder of the blessings that are available to be received by faith. Even as we think of our brother and sister who are getting ready to go and to prepare to take this good news of how sinful man can be reconciled and stand right before a holy God. The reason... And just to remind you, days are going to be hard. Uh, You're going to miss a ton of this and life as you've known it. But the reason that we go is because there is a blessing that is available. And God has promised in and through his word that he will justify from every nation. And so you go. The reward is so, so great. 
And that's why we as a church stand behind you, not merely to say, praise God, now you guys go, but that's why we busy ourselves with the work of obedience even here. It's because there are people in our city who have not heard and do not believe. And the blessings that are available in Christ, we don't sit on those. This is the glory of those who once were beggars, who have found food, who now then go and joyfully, joyfully share good news with others. Which just means for us in here, all of the things that we have done, all of the things we are doing, all of the things we ever will do, if we turn from sin and place our faith and our trust in the finished work of Christ alone, there can be forgiveness for that. God's blessing is available even for the likes of you. But it's not going to be through how clean can you make yourself? It's going to be through whether or not you place your faith and your, tr- your trust in the finished work of Jesus alone. And it's that basis and that blessing through which all other blessings from God and of God flow to us. Verse 14 even highlights another one of those. We receive the Spirit of God who seals us for eternal life. The same way that it was by grace through faith that you got in, that's the way that you will endure. Eternity waits for those who come in by grace and who are carried by grace, who come in through faith and who live through faith. One pastor put it this way, only the Spirit of God can take away the fear of death and hell and replace it with the hope of eternal life. And the way by which he does that by sending his spirit to all who would believe. The child of Abraham can say with sincerity, by faith, I am crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. We're children of Abraham if we live by faith in the promises of God that have been seen in the person and the work of Christ. I wonder, do you know these blessings? Are they yours because of faith in Christ? Leads us to our second truth. Second truth we see in verses 10 through 12, God's curses come to those who are under the law. So God's blessing is received by faith. Secondly, God's curses come to those who are under the law. See if you can hear that in verses 10 through 12. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. I hope you heard it. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. To perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Throughout this passage, what we find is this kind of 
contrast between blessings and curse. You go back and just underline all the times you see blessings, underline all the times you see curse, and you just begin to see Paul is trying to make clear here. Right? If, if verses 7 through 9, or 6 through 9 even, were this positive spin for what it means to, to be in Christ, then 10 through 12, is he's stating it negatively. And he's stating it through the reality of curses. You see, the God of the Bible is a God of both blessings and curses. When I say curses, he's not a God who uses vulgar speech. No, he is a God who in his holiness has a holy hatred towards sin. And when he exercises that holy hatred, it comes out in what would be the opposite of a blessing. It would be a curse. And so as we look around and we're reminded of cancer and car accidents and the death of loved ones and mosquitoes and malaria and miscarriages, all evidence that we live in a world under the curse of God. And there's this major obstacle that Paul brings up it would just seem, okay, if, if living by faith is the only issue, then let's just everybody live by faith. And why does it even matter? I mean, aren't we kind of neutral anyway? And Paul says, no. There's an obstacle here, and it's called the curse of the law. And that's what he unpacks in these few verses. We're going to come to see in a few weeks what the purpose of the law was. But here he wants to make clear what the purpose of the law is not. And the law has not been given so as to make us righteous. It's not been given so as to declare or credit or reckon us as righteous. It can't make us right with God. Instead, the law condemns us all as sinners, as transgressors. It's like a, a mirror that is held up to show us really one thing. Two, the holiness of God, the standard of God. But about ourselves, it's meant to show us that we are dirty. We're sinful. And for those who are dirty and sinful, they don't receive the blessing. They receive the curse. The opposite of blessing is what a curse is, which means at minimum, the curse here is the absence of the Spirit of God. Which we see, sons of Abraham, those who are of faith, they get that in verse 14. And so it would be the absence of the Spirit of God. It would be cut off from the living God. It would be having his wrath, his holy, violent hatred towards sin, bearing down on us. If we were to take the sort of the one of the pinnacle blessings of, of the Old Testament, R.C. Sproul is helpful here. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Read this way this benediction that Aaron gives. To his sons, and he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And R.C. Sproul says, if we, under, if we want to understand something of the curse of God, then it would be the opposite of this clear pinnacle blessing of God. So Sproul says, Well, what's the opposite of that blessing? It's this, may the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. And may the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. And what Paul is saying is that's what every one of us deserve who are not of faith. Who think we can, we're going to make it on our own. 
we can get along well enough. And Paul aims to make clear that anyone who seeks to be justified by the law, those who seek to be, for God to say, yes, you are acceptable before me because of all the works that you've done. Paul makes it very clear that those who are thinking this way need to understand what the law actually requires. What the law actually requires is not for you to do some of those works. It's not for you to have some level of obedience or even a pretty good track record over the last few months of obedience. What the law requires is that there is perfect obedience. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 to make that point. I would just encourage you to, to, to go back, read Deuteronomy 27, Deuteronomy 28. What you find is the 12 tribes are up to, on two different mounts. And, and as, as the blessings of God are pronounced, one of the tribes say, amen, amen, amen. And what they're saying is, yes, we believe that when we obey, God will bless And then when the curses are announced at at the end of every one, amen, amen, amen. The other six tribes are saying, yes, we believe that every time we disobey, God will pour out his wrath and we will experience his curse. And oh, just in case you were wondering, the last curse is that if you fail to keep all of it. And so Paul points back to this. Because Deuteronomy gives us this frightful and forceful picture of the curse of God for disobedient rebellion. If you read chapter 28, I mean, it's, it's, it's disturbing. There are a few verses about the blessings that come, but most of the chapter is about what it's like to have God pour out his curses upon a people for disobedience. I mean, it, again, just... Yeah, there are some disturbing things in there about people being left to, to even, I'll just let you read it. This was God's chosen people. And the curses that would unfold in the Old Testament were reminders to them that they could not keep the law. And that rolls on to us in our sin. As Paul will write in Romans chapter 3, for there is none who are righteous. No, not one. And so I just want you to know, you may be a pretty good person. And you may look to the left and to the right of you, even right now, don't do it. And you may go, well, I feel pretty good about myself. When you stand before a holy God, there is nowhere to hide. And you will not feel good about yourself because of your sin. When we attempt to self-justify, no matter how impressive our record looks, any sin any sin makes the whole thing come crashing down. This is what James would say in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of breaking it all. I mean, works-based righteousness. I can be righteous by my work. It makes no sense because it's attempted by people who can't keep God's command. And yet maybe who think that if we can just put God in our debt by doing some of it, then he owes us something. Brothers and sisters, allow Genesis chapter 3 to remind us it just took one sin and they were banished from the presence of God. One sin. That's his standard. Not because he's mean, but because he's 
completely holy. Paul's going to reiterate this by quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. He says, no one can stand rightly before the Lord because the righteous, they live by faith. So the righteous don't live by their works and the performance. No, they live by faith. And it's interesting, if you were to go, I would just encourage you sometime, if you're looking for something to do this afternoon, read Habakkuk. Read Habakkuk, it's small. Chapter 2, Habakkuk predicted a day of judgment when the Chaldeans would punish God's people for not keeping the law. So the question that Habakkuk really raises is God has made promises to a people, and yet he's also promised to bring judgment to this people. Now, will this people, will they trust that God will keep his promises even if judgment comes? Do you trust that God will keep his promise when consequences for your sin come? Do you trust that he'll keep his promise when life is difficult? I'm helped by how Habakkuk ends. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no fruit, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. I mean, do you see the picture? Though we, though we are recipients of the curses and the judgment of God, verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and he makes me walk on my high places. The righteous response is belief in God's promises. And then to keep the train going, Paul is just unloading all of this truth from the Old Testament. He quotes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And he brings this section to an end, kind of closing his case here. He's saying being justified by faith is incompatible to efforts of being justified by works. So we can't say, yes, I'm justified by faith, but really I've also got to work at it. Those two things are incompatible. You're living by two completely set of standards. And to be clear, this doesn't mean that Christians just toss out all of God's commands and they say, yep, it's only about faith. No, context is key here. What Paul's doing is not saying that Christians' lives should not be marked by works of righteousness. He's saying the Christian life is never an attempt to earn God's favor through works of righteousness. You see, one pastor talks about it this way. He says, it's as if the letter of Galatians is written to show that the Christian life is really meant to be run on this track of faith that leads to good works. And these false teachers showed up and they picked up the track, the train tracks, and they sort of set it up. And they said, no, no, it's not about faith leading to a life of good works till we get to glory. Those good works then, they earn our way up to God. And Paul says it's deadly. It's deadly to take the description of the Christian life, live by faith, allow works to give evidence to that faith, and so twist it as to say, work to earn faith, and so see if God is pleased with you. 
every religion in the world teaches that all you need is a law. All you need is some standard, a law. You do what it's right. You do what's right. You climb the ladder, and then you get to God. And Paul says that is not true of the Christian faith because what the law does is it exposes and it, it extends and it concentrates the curse of Genesis 3. You are banished away from the presence of God because of your sin. And it says you are, in, you are unable, you have inability to work your way back to God. Micah and Rachel, this is why you're going to prepare. Is because they're are unreached people groups that, as I speak, are sitting under the curse of God. And so you go. It's worth holding out the possibility of blessing. And they will continue to sit under the curse until they hear and until they believe. And come to Life Church, this is why we labor among the Tampa Bay area. We go because our city doesn't believe. Some don't even want to hear. So that doesn't then mean that we just check out and say, well, it's on you. No, in love, as those who've been the recipients of extravagant love and grace, we move towards those. And we hold out gospel truth because we know not just the blessings are unimaginable, but the curses are devastatingly more than we could ever imagine. Paul says in verse 10 that all who rely on or are of the works of the law are under a curse. And so the question then is how can God count righteous people who really are not righteous? And that leads us to our last truth. Number three, Christ became a curse that we might know his blessing. Christ became a curse that we might know his blessing. And so I hope you can see the flow of the argument in this little section. God's blessing, it's something that you can't even imagine, but that your heart longs for more than you realize. It's available. It can be received by faith. And no matter how good you think your life is today, it is not good because you are under the curses of God if you are not of faith. How do we get that? How is it that we can be reckoned as righteousness if we really aren't righteous? And Paul makes clear, we can do that because of the work of Christ. Verses 13 and 14. Listen again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so the question is, what hope is there for a people who've tried to bribe God with our good works? John Piper says, when you have insulted the all-sufficient creator by exalting yourself so as to think that you could barter with him, give me your mercy, I'll give you my works. He says, your Exchanging your morality for his mercy? Piper says, there's no hope at all unless God in his remarkable love is willing to transfer your sentence of death to another. And this is what the heart of the Christian faith is all about. 
is that there was a death sentence that you and I deserve because of our sin, and it was transferred. It was put on a substitute, and that substitute exhausted the wrath of God that was due sinners. At not, he took most of it so that, hey, when you have a bad day, it's been 14 days since you've read your Bible. No, he exhausted all of it. So that by faith then going forward, it's not about your works. It's about the work that Christ has done. It's about what he endured. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's about the one who knew no sin, who became sin. He became a curse for us. Jesus wasn't guilty of one moment of failure in keeping the law. He loved his father perfectly. He lived in the power of the Spirit Perfectly, he fulfilled the law perfectly. And yet in great mercy and grace that will not make sense when you begin to pull out the ledger and say, okay, why did did Jesus do it? It, it? It will not add up. But he did become a curse so that we could receive his blessing by faith. And these two verses really do bring us to the heart of the gospel. This is only possible because Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Paul is showing how Abraham was always about Jesus, how the law was always about Jesus, how the Old Testament was always about Jesus. The heart of Christianity isn't unclear to understand, but it is hard to accept. And it's hard to accept because it runs literally against the grain of everything that you think naturally is going to make you right with God. And I just want to say you have severely overestimated your good works and you've severely underestimated the sufficiency of the work of Jesus the Christ. Don't go to your grave with that foolish thought. On your best day, you're not that good. What makes this blessing possible? It's this idea of substitution. One person giving his life for another. The Son of God himself. Absorbing, carrying the curse rightly meant for you and I. And so let's be clear. Jesus didn't die as a martyr. He died a death of execution for a capital offense against a holy God, offenses that he never committed. Like, that's your penalty. It's my penalty. And in grace and love, beyond what we can ever imagine, he would become a curse so that our sins would define him before the Father, and our sins would not define us before the Father. And so this is how this blessing of Abraham flows to all people. Jew, Gentile. I don't think there's a ton of Jewish folk in the room. Praise be to God, this good news was open to you and I. And it's open to every other people group. It's open to every coworker. It's open to every neighbor. Who will the Lord redeem? We have no idea. 
but we know that the blessings are too good to sit on and the curses are too devastating to not warn others with and about. God forgives sinners because God, through the work of Jesus Christ, sinless life, death on the cross as a substitute, resurrection on the third day. He forgives sinners because Christ paid the penalty for the curse of sin. And so this means that God doesn't overlook your sin. This means that if you are in Christ, all of the sin that the enemy wants to bring to your mind to tell you that God will not forgive or that you are not righteous, I just want to remind you, Jesus paid the penalty for that sin. And your hope in that moment when you feel condemnation is not that somehow that you who are unable to do good works can muster up good works that would be acceptable. No, your hope in that moment is to say, I don't deserve any of this. But the work of my Savior is sufficient for all of this. And what do you do? The same way that you began by faith, you continue by faith. By faith, you will be brought home. Praise be to God that we can know forgiveness because God lovingly decided not to ignore our sin, but to send his son to pay for it. And so Paul has shown us why the law is hopeless. It's a hopeless road for those who want to be declared righteous before him. Because it requires perfect obedience and we can't give that. We stand cursed under the law. And he shows us why faith alone can justify. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to remind you, only the infinite Son of God could ever bear the infinite wrath of God for your sins. I mean, that is your only hope. On the cross, Christ endured the most intense and concentrated evil ever. He took the weight of the curse on himself. And so don't rely on your works. Rest on the work of Jesus the Christ. Flee to him. Know what it's like when you turn from your sin and trust in this work to be able to say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. It would be the joy of any Christian in this room to talk to you about what that means and how you move from where you're at to that good place of knowing his blessing and not being under his curse. And brothers and sisters, covenant life, it is dangerous for us to forget this. It's dangerous for us. But it's remarkably beneficial for us to remember that if we, just, if we can grasp more fully day in and day out, we are justified by faith alone in the crucified and risen Christ and not on the basis of our good works. I'm just convinced that our singing would be more joyful. I'm convinced that if we knew this more, if it got deep into our hearts, our prayers would be more fervent. Our zeal for evangelism would be more inflamed. Our love for one another would be deeper. Our obedience to the Lord's commands would be greater. And I say that because I believe that the greatest motivation for us to grow in godliness and in grace is not by saying, covenant life, there's the law. Now go do it. But to just remind you, covenant life, there was a law that you couldn't keep. And in unfathomable mercy and grace, here is Christ who kept it for you. He's done what you can't do. You owe everything to him. 
Now let's have fun together in walking out this life of obedience. One of the ways that we as a church have the opportunity to walk out together this life of obedience is by being reminded, not just through the preaching of the word, but being reminded through the visible picture of this gospel message through the Lord's Supper. All right, Paul's going to say a couple of times, beginning of Galatians chapter 3, he'll say, his preaching publicly portrayed the, crucif- the crucifixion of Christ. And here in our passage, in verse 8, it says, the scriptures preached this good news. Well, the Lord's Supper displays the truth of the gospel. It makes clear. It gives us a picture of what we're believing in faith. And so like faithful preaching, this meal helps us to remember and to see the gospel. And so as we approach the Lord's Supper together this morning, I just want to remind you, this is not for people who've yet to confess Jesus as Christ. It's not for people who've turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone. And that doesn't mean that somehow uh, this church isn't being welcoming. No, it means this church wants you to consider what's of foremost and utmost importance. And that's not that somehow by taking this that you can earn God's favor. No, this is for people who can never earn God's favor and who've shown that by turning from their sin and trusting in the work of Jesus alone. And so as the elements are being passed, I just want to remind you even of two things. One is that this is a community meal. And so much like sitting at a table, I believe there will be a table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a big one. And I don't know how we're going to see everybody, but I just envision that somehow all of that's going to be taken care of. And what we will feel in that moment is that we are family being invited through the grace and the mercy of our Savior to sit and to eat. And so we just even want to allow this to be a foretaste of that meal that we would share together. The unity that's found whenever a people turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. And so as you pass, think about your brothers and sisters who God in great mercy has pulled them out of their sin and made them a new people. The table at Covenant Life is open to baptized believers. Baptized believers who are members in good standing of a church that preaches the same gospel that you heard here. Those that are baptized, members of local churches that are faithful to the gospel, but also those that are walking in repentance of sin and walking in reconciliation with one another. And if you're a Christian and that doesn't describe you, Paul would say, don't drink judgment on yourself and thinking that somehow doing this work earned you something. Rather, do business with the Lord. Make this even a moment where you long to return yet again in two weeks where we can come to the table together. And so I'm going to pray. Whenever I uh, am done praying, the elements will be passed so you can stay seated. You'll take your elements and we will wait. Once everyone has received them, we will take the Lord's Supper together. Let's respond in great faith in this good news. Our holy God, we come to you and we thank you for the work that you've done. We're thankful for the truths of the gospel. We're thankful that we, as 
non-descendant Gentiles can be included in. And so I pray that you would grant faith. Give faith everywhere in this room where it lacks. Call men and women, boys and girls, to yourself. And allow us to respond in what would need to be characterized in our day as radical obedience. But what we understand the Bible to say, this is what the mark of a true Christian is. So may we respond in obedience. Let us take and eat and drink in remembrance of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.